Welcome to Tuesdays with Merton. We are happy to be back after a two-month summer break. My name is Teresa Sandock. I'm a Servite sister and a member of the Tuesdays with Merton Planning Committee, along with Daniel Horan and Ellen Pope. Dan is a Franciscan friar and director of the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Ellen holds the chair in, uh, chair in Faith and Life at Baldwin-Wallace University. He also serves on the board of directors of the International Thomas Merton Society. Today, we begin the third year of this webinar series, which owes its success both to our engaging presenters and to you, our participants, for your faithful attendance and for spreading the word about Tuesdays with Merton. This series is co-sponsored by the International Thomas Merton Society and the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's College. The webinars are aired on the second Tuesday of each month. Please note that we are recording this webinar. It will be available on YouTube and as a podcast soon after the live event. You may post questions in the chat at any time. Please send your questions to Alan Culp. And now it is my pleasure to introduce Father Daniel P. Horan. Dan is Professor of Philosophy, Religious Studies, and Theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana, where, as I mentioned, he is Director of the Center for Spirituality. He previously held the Duns Scotus Chair of Spirituality at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. A columnist for National Catholic Reporter, he is the author of 14 books, including... The Franciscan Heart of Thomas Merton, A White Catholic's Guide to Racism and Privilege, and The Way of the Franciscans, A Prayer Journey Through Lent. He is working on two Merton projects at the moment, a book titled Striving Toward Authenticity, Engaging Thomas Merton on Race, Justice, and Spirituality for Orbis Books, and he continues to edit the extensive correspondence between Merton and Naomi Burton Stone. He regularly lectures around the United States and abroad. He serves on a number of university, academic, and uh, publication boards, and he is co-host of the Franciscan Effect podcast. Here now is Father Dan Horan speaking on True and False Love, Thomas Merton's Spirituality of the Restless Heart. Dan? Thank you so much, Teresa, and uh, I'm so delighted to be with everybody uh, in front of the, the scenes, I guess. I'm usually behind the scenes, so a, a shout out of thanks to Teresa and to Alan, who are uh, controlling the the uh, folks entering the waiting room at this point. Um, as is our tradition here, I'm going to begin with a prayer, and this prayer comes to us from Thomas Merton himself. Um, I happened upon it in this great collection that many of you may be familiar with, Jonathan Montaldo's edited uh, selections of Dialogue with Silence. And when I looked up in the original source for this text where it came from, I had to smile because it, it was from his journal, Thomas Merton's journal entry in February 1941, the same day that he was received into the Third Order of the Franciscans, the secular Franciscans. So I think the Holy Spirit was at work. But I invite us uh, to enter into a place of silence as Merton invites us to reflect on God's presence in that space. The title of this prayer is, Thou art not as I have conceived thee. Lord, it is nearly midnight, and I am waiting for you in the darkness and the great silence. I am sorry for all of my sins. Do not let me ask any more than to sit in the darkness and light no lights of my own, 
and be crowded but with no crowds of my own, thoughts to fill the emptiness of the night in which I await you. In order to remain in the sweet darkness of pure faith, let me become nothing to the pale, weak light of sense. As to the world, let me become totally obscure from it forever. Thus through this darkness may I come to your brightness at last. Having become insignificant to the world, may I reach out towards the infinite meanings contained in your peace and your glory. Your brightness is my darkness. I know nothing of you, and by myself I cannot even imagine how to go about knowing you. If I imagine you, I am mistaken. If I understand you, I am deluded. If I am conscious and certain I know you, I am crazy. Darkness is enough. And with Merton, we say amen. The theme tonight is True and False Love, Thomas Merton's Spirituality of the Restless Heart. In the December 24th, 1966 issue of Ave Maria magazine, which is published by the Congregation of the Holy Cross at the University of Notre Dame, just across the street from here, Thomas Merton published an essay titled A Buyer's Market for Love, which was later collected in the posthumously published volume Love and Learning under the title Love and Need. Is love a package or a message? In it, Merton writes, Love is our true destiny. We do not find the meaning of our life by ourselves alone. We find it with another. We do not discover the secret of our lives merely by study and calculation in our own isolated meditations. The meaning of our life is a secret that has to be revealed to us in love by the one we love. These are the words of the mature Merton one who had lived, loved, and learned a tremendous amount over the course of what would be a life cut tragically short, for he would die suddenly two years to the month after this essay was published. Interestingly, this essay was also written as one of Merton's most significant experiences of love was shifting in real time, and an important relationship was coming to an end. It all began in March 23, March 23rd, 1966, when Merton left his hermitage to have back surgery in Louisville, Kentucky. As the Merton scholar Christine Beauchene summarizes well, and I quote, a week later he met M, a student nurse assigned to care for him, and they fell in love. In the weeks and months that followed, as spring turned to summer, they exchanged letters, talked on the phone when Merton was able to call, and spent time together at Gethsemane and in Louisville. Their visits were few, hours alone fewer still. But almost from the beginning, Merton knew that the relationship could not endure. He was, after all, a monk. By the time the essay appeared in print, Merton and M had effectively ended their relationship and all but stopped communication by both letter and phone. And yet I note this significant moment in Merton's life and its proximity to the publication of this essay, because I believe they are related. The Merton who could so clearly and confidently proclaim, love is our true destiny, and the meaning of our life is a secret that has to be revealed to us in love by the one we love, is one who had himself lived what he writes, had practiced what he now preaches. What we find in Merton's mature writing on love is wisdom for us all. It is, I believe, a reflection of someone who finally knew what it was to love and to be loved in a way that he had not previously experienced, but that we all long for in some manner. 
As the late Benedictine sister and psychologist Suzanne Zucker once wrote about the relationship between Merton and M, in my opinion, she writes, it was M more than any other person or any other experience who brought the spiritual master to embrace the fullness of his humanity. The renowned scholar of spirituality, Cynthia Bergeau, expressed a similar sentiment in a 2002 essay in which she wrote that, and I quote, Merton's love can be seen not as a fall from a monastic ideal of purity, but as having its own intrinsic beauty and coherence. This is what in part makes Merton such an important and attractive spiritual figure and teacher. He is not speaking from some place of inaccessible perfection or ascetic distance, but from an embodied, fully human, beautiful, and familiar location of good but flawed reality. And it took a lifetime for him to arrive at the wisdom he leaves us today. Merton's writings on love in all its forms, from the theological virtue to the poetic ideal to the experiential reality and beyond, all developed over time. It is a theme that appears in his journals and his correspondence and his essays and books. It's a subject that, as he regularly notes, is unavoidable if one takes seriously the centrality of agopic love in the Christian tradition and the inherent capacity and need for love as a fundamental human experience. But Merton's own understanding of love shifted, developed, and grew over time. It's well known that in his youth, his relationships, especially with women, were at times superficial, reflecting an inadequate, even false sense of love. At worst, as we know, such romantic relationships led to neglect and abandonment. Such was the case while he was a student at the University of Cambridge. Some scholars have speculated that a contributing factor in this understanding of love and relationship was the loss of his mother at age six and his father at age 16. Others have reflected on, on this youthful naivete and sexist socialization in the context of the early 20th century. Whatever the constellation of external and internal factors were, whatever they were, that led to Merton's early and immature understanding of love, what we do know is he came to a deeper appreciation for both love of God and love of neighbor as time went on. This presentation tonight is neither a narrow examination of Merton's romantic experience of love with M, nor is it a comprehensive survey of Merton's writings on human and divine love. Such an exercise would take a many, many hours and several volumes, I fear. Instead, what I'd like to do is provide a more modest attempt at lifting up some of Merton's wisdom on the topic of authentic love. Merton frequently contrasts authentic, real, true love with what is untrue, selfish, or false love, as he says. While this distinction is seen variously throughout Merton's extensive uh, written corpus, I want to focus on two illustrative essays where we can see him teasing out the contrast and the, challenge in, in, in the challenge of knowing and living true love. The first essay was originally published in two parts in the fall of 1960 and was later collected in the volume Disputed Questions. It has the new title in that collection, The Power and Meaning of Love. The second is the essay, Love and Need, Is Love a Package or a Message, from which the quote I shared at the outset tonight was taken. From these two important essays, we will glean insights about the real meaning of true love and the corruptions that lead to what Merton calls false love. But before that, I want to talk a little about what I'm tentatively calling Thomas Merton's spirituality of the restless heart, which is inspired by the famous Augustinian line, you stir humanity to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. 
After that, we will look at some of the variations of false love Merton describes, and then what the characteristics of true love are before uh, closing with a brief conclusion and our discussion. First, Merton's spirituality of the restless heart. Thomas Merton was never content. His life always seemed to reflect an embodied sense of restlessness. From an early age, he was constantly on the move, from France to the United States, to Bermuda, back to France, then to England, first at Oakham, then at Cambridge, then back to the United States. He was also intellectually on the move as a young man and a university student, enrolling first in modern languages at Cambridge and then English literature at Columbia. He was intrigued by intellectual and social movements of his time. He found himself captivated by Catholic Christianity. He entered the church and then immediately began vocational discernment to religious life. As we know, first to the Franciscans, which did not pan out, although I have to say, for more complicated reasons than is typically realized, and ultimately, as we know, to the Cistercians. But before that, he would teach English for three semesters at St. Bonaventure University in Western New York, bouncing back and forth in his mind and his heart about where to go next. For example, living and discerning for a summer with Catherine de Hook Doherty and her Madonna House community in New York City. Even after entering the Abbey of Gethsemane, Merton was still constantly on the move, even if he wasn't leaving the grounds all that much. He was longing for more solitude in a hermitage on the Abbey grounds, or another monastery in South America, or another monastic order like the Camaldolese. Even in the last few months before his untimely death in 1968, Merton traveled on his way to Asia through the American West, including Alaska, to scout out possible sites for a remote site on which to build a new hermitage, a more remote hermitage, in fact. The fruit of Merton's own struggles and spiritual restlessness are found in the wisdom and insights that he leaves us today. Whether resulting from the challenges of personality or context or some combination of, of the two, Merton's restlessness informed his own prayer life and religi religious discernment. When we read his writings on the spiritual life, we see not only instructions for the reader, but a reminder to himself about the need for spiritual reorientation and anchoring in God rather than the peripatetic quest for stability, affirmation, acceptance, recognition, or worth from without. Such is the case when we read in New Seeds of Contemplation. When humility delivers a person from attachments to their own works and their own reputation, they discover that perfect joy is possible only when we have forgotten, completely forgotten ourselves. And it is only when we pay no more attention to our own deeds and our own reputation and our own excellence that we are at last completely free to serve God in perfection for God's own sake alone. Merton writes this within the context of discussing the spiritual journey toward perfection and sanctity, which follows his lengthy reflection on the true and false selves. Merton then succinctly notes, he says, quote, to say that I am made in the image of God is to say that love is the reason for my existence, for God is love. Love is my true identity. Selflessness is my true self. Love is my true character. Love is my name. And again, as if channeling St. Augustine's own reflections on the restless character of his heart, Merton writes, and I quote, to find love, I must enter into the sanctuary where it is hidden, which is the mystery of God. Near the end of New Seeds, in a chapter simply titled Pure Love, Merton writes about what he considers to be our alienated condition, separated from God and therefore separated from our true selves. Like, as he puts it, prodigals in a distant country, 
the region of unlikeness. We come to recognize that we are on a journey that is often characterized by restlessness, by a hunger or by a longing. Elsewhere, Merton writes, there is in us an instinct for newness, for renewal, for a liberation of creative power. We seek to awaken in ourselves a force which really changes our lives from within. And yet the same instinct tells us that this change is recovery of that which is deepest, most original, most personal in ourselves. To be born again is not to become somebody else, but to become ourselves. This longing for newness, for renewal, for a liberation of creative power, as he puts it, is what compels him and us onward toward the quest to rest in God, as Augustine famously put it. Or as Merton would say, to discover who it is that we really are. This is, as Merton writes in New Seeds, often a counterintuitive journey, given that so much energy and effort is placed on our externalizing our search for identity, egged on by the manifold distractions of our societies and cultures, encouraging us to embrace the appetites of our ego and cultivate our own identities that amount to nothing more than the accumulation of false selves. In response to this challenge, Merton explains that, and I quote, our reality, our true self is hidden in what appears to us to be nothingness and void. What we are not seems to be real. What we are seems to be unreal. We can rise above this unreality and recover our hidden identity. And that is why the way to reality is the way of humility, which brings us to reject the illusory self and accept the empty self that is nothing in our own eyes and in the eyes of other men and women, but is our true reality in the eyes of God. For this reality is in God and with God and belongs entirely to God. It is in this sense that Merton can say with great confidence that the secret of my identity is hidden in the love and mercy of God, adding, therefore, I cannot hope to find myself anywhere except in God. The restlessness that exists in our hearts, that drives our ultimate desires and fuels our insatiable longing for meaning, will only be satisfied by the love of God. Or as Merton writes, and I quote, therefore, there is only one problem on which all my existence, my peace and my happiness depend to discover myself in discovering God. If I find God, I will find myself. And if I find my true self, I will find him. Like the inherent natural longing for renewal and rebirth, which propels us onward toward God and the true self, Merton's spirituality of the restless heart provides a path toward recognizing, embracing, and the living true love. But before we get to true love, let's talk about some false love. Merton writes, men and women cannot live without love. And if the love is not genuine, then they must have some substitute, a corruption of real love. These corruptions are innumerable. While there are certainly other forms that exist within and outside of Merton's accounting, he offers explicitly, I would suggest, four variations on false love. We can call this a sort of tentative typology. I want to call these first objectified love, second romanticized love, third legalism masking as love, and fourth what Merton calls the package concept of love. Referring to all of these tendencies, Merton notes that sometimes we are attuned to the falsity of some kinds of love and can avoid falling prey to them from the outset. However, there are others that create real difficulty for many people, 
many kinds of false loves that entrap us. Merton says, and I quote, those which present a problem do so because they can seem and claim to be genuine love. These false forms of love base their claim on appeal to an ideal, and their falsity consists precisely in the fact that they tend to sacrifice persons to concepts. When this sort of pseudo-intellectualization takes over our understanding and practice of love, what results is inevitably a conditional and false sense of love, which is not what Christ calls us to live. Merton elaborates on this contrast, noting that corrupt forms of love wait for the neighbor to become worthy, a worthy object of love before we actually love them. Merton says this is not the way of Christ, since Christ himself loved us when we were by no means worthy of love and still loves us with all our unworthiness. Our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. That is not our business, Merton says. And in fact, it is nobody's business. What we are asked to do is love. And this love itself will render both ourselves and our neighbor worthy, if anything can, end quote. So let us turn to briefly examine each of these four kinds of false love about which Merton speaks. First, the objectified love. Drawing on the philosophical and theological insights of continental thinkers in the early 20th century, although without explicitly naming them, Merton highlights the importance of loving another as a wholly free subject. Merton explains, the trouble is that love is something quite other than the mere disposition of a subject confronted with an object. In fact, when love is a mere subject-object relationship, it is not real love at all. And therefore, it matters little to inquire whether the object of one's love is real or not, since if our love is only our impulsion towards an object or towards a thing, it is not yet fully love. And here we have the summation of this first kind of false love in Merton's unsystematic typology, objectified love. There is a way in which this kind of love comes to pass unwittingly, not necessarily because an individual is consciously objectifying or dehumanizing another person. But, Merton will point out, maybe it's because we have a fear of vulnerability, a fear of disclosure, openness, and transparency. And this takes hold and creates a proactive distance between oneself and another. Merton writes, and I quote, When we love another as an object, we refuse or fail to pass over into the realm of his or her own spiritual reality, into their personal identity. Our contact with them is inhibited by remoteness and by a kind of censorship which excludes their personality and uniqueness from our consideration. We are not interested in them as themselves, but only as another specimen of the human race, end quote. Such a kind of love is not only destructive because of how it frames and limits the other, but also because of how it serves as a gatekeeping mechanism for the one seeking to love. This kind of love is false because it never seeks to risk what is necessary to know and be known by the other. And it fails to recognize the gentle quality and the inherent subjectivity of another. To love another as an object is to love them as a thing, Merton writes, as a commodity which can be used and exploited, enjoyed and then cast off. One never invests in the other or dares to stake a vulnerable claim on behalf of a relationship of mutuality. While there is certainly a degree of selfishness that undergirds such a false love, there is also a tremendous amount of fear and withdrawal. 
Merton addresses this dynamic of insecurity when he writes, but to love another as a person, we must begin by granting them their own autonomy and identity as a person. We have to love them for their own good, not for the good we get out of them. And this is impossible unless we are capable of a love which transforms us, so to speak, into another person, making us able to see things as they see them, love what they love, experience the deeper realities of their own life as if they were our own. In other words, Merton says that love without sacrifice and compassion is no real love at all. The false love of objectification feels comfortable to us because it's an attempt to love someone at arm's length without letting the messiness of human relationships affect us, without letting the messiness of human relationships challenge us and ultimately transform us. Romanticized love. Now, despite how the term sounds, this second category, romanticized love, is not just about romantic or erotic love. Philosophically, when Merton terms romanticized love, might rightly be called a platonic idealization of the concept of love. Merton believed that there was a strong tendency, especially in our modern contexts, to move away from the personal, embodied, imperfect, and finite love of real life to embrace instead an abstraction or seek after an ideal mental conception of love. He explains this in a lengthy quote that I'm going to share here. He says, what we call the romantic approach to love is that love of the good, which sacrifices the persons and the values that are present and actual to other values, which are always out of reach. Here, a shiftless individualism dignifies itself as the quest for an elusive ideal, whether in politics or art or religion, or merely in one's relations with other people. Such love is apparently obsessed with perfection. It passes from one object to another, examining it superficially, playing with it, tempting it, being tempted by it, and then letting go of it because it is, quote, not the right object. Such love, Merton says, is therefore always discarding the real and actual in order to go on to something else, because the real and actual are never quite right, never good enough to be worth our love. Merton summarizes with what I think is prophetic clarity, the state of affairs that so many of us find ourselves embroiled in on the quest for genuine love. As psychologists, sociologists, and demographers have noted in recent decades, the nearly instantaneous availability of information and the curating of our digital selves via social media have made what Merton describes here about the quest for the ideal and perfect experience of love, or more, the ideal and perfect object of love, all the more pressing. The falsity of this kind of love is revealed upon closer examination of both its motivations and consequences. Merton writes, and I quote, such love is really only an escape from love because it refuses the obligation of entering into a real relationship, which would render love at the same time possible and obligatory. Because it hates the idea of obligation, it cannot fully face even the possibility of such a relationship. And then Merton adds, its romanticism is a justification of flight. It claims that it will only be, uh, it will only be, it will only being to love when it has found an object, a, a worthy object, excuse me, whether it be a person who can, quote, really be loved or an ideal that can really be believed in or an experience of God that is definitive and binding, end quote. 
the false uh, the falsity of love of romanticism here captures well the temptation to indefinite deferral of true love. Ironically, the claim to delay true love on account of an idealized or abstracted uh, object of love is in fact a reduction of the full humanity of those one actually encounters. This romanticized love, therefore, declares an open season on perfect objects, Merton says, and proceeds comfortably to neglect persons and realities which are present and actual, and which in all their imperfection still offer the challenge and the opportunity of genuine love. This romanticized love ultimately results in another form of avoiding commitment and justifying a solipsistic mode of being in the world. Mern explains that this form of false love is in fact a way of defending oneself against real involvement in an interpersonal relationship and of keeping other persons subdued and humiliated in the status of objects. Admittedly, this is rarely a conscious activity. Instead, it is often a self-defense mechanism arising from insecurity and fear, which unsurprisingly results in barriers to authentic relationship and love. Our third false love, legalism masked as love. Here, Merton explicitly names what we might call legalism masked as love. He notes from the outset that the legalist corruption of love is also a refusal to love on the ground that an object is not worthy. He adds, and I quote, but here, instead of undertaking a vast exploration in quest of the worthy object, which can never be found, the presence of the unworthy object becomes the excuse for a tyrannical campaign for worthiness, a campaign to which there is practically no end. In this false form of love, the objectification of personality and of all spiritual values is carried to the extreme. This distortion is found in predictable places like totalitarian regimes and those persons and groups who subjugate individuals and their particular circumstances, social locations, and realities to some generic part of a collective. But Merton also notes that this legalism is a dangerous threat within the Christian community too. He notes that this legalism is, quote, another weak form of love, which in the end produces dissension, destroys communion, and for all its talk about unity tends by its narrowness and rigidity to create divisions among people. Now, like the trap of romanticism, legalism masquerades as authentic, often as the most authentic form of love. Whereas romanticism perpetually defers the possibility of true love because of the endless and unrealistic quest for the perfect or ideal object of love, legalism offers another form of rejecting authentic relationship and true love on the grounds that others do not measure up to the assumed rigors of disciplinary observance. We see this play out frequently today, especially within ecclesial circles when religious leaders publicly condemn individuals, for instance, politicians, for not conforming to the particular religious leader's interpretation of the law, both religious or secular law, and the related expectations. Within my own Catholic Christian context, I think we see this often when bishops deny individuals access to the sacraments, especially the Eucharist. In a weak but common defense, such self-identified Christians often say that they are merely, quote, following the rules, and that their preferred punishments are, in fact, a form of, quote, tough love. We've read about this, we've seen this, and some of us may have experienced this before. But as Merton notes, and I quote, 
Legalism and practice makes law and discipline more important than love itself. For the legalist, law is more worthy of love than the persons for whose benefit the law was instituted. Discipline is more important than the good of the souls to whom discipline is given, not as an end in itself, but as a means to their growth in Christ. End quote. While this is evident within the dynamics of Christian life and ministry, it's also present in our interpersonal dynamics as well. There is in this context of false love a non-negotiable quality required for admittance into a relationship. It is not acceptance of the two subjects and free persons as they are in mutual love and respect. Instead, it is the prioritization of certain abstract policies and measurements over the particularity of the individual. This setting of a bar, which the other must reach in order to be loved or even deemed lovable, is in reality a fatal perversion of the Christian spirit. Mern explains, such love is the enemy of the cross of Christ because it flatly contradicts the teaching and mercy of Christ. It treats people as if they were made for the Sabbath. It loves concepts and despises persons. It is the kind of love that says korban, as we read in the seventh chapter of Mark, referring to the practice in which one takes personal financial, financial advantage of someone that is said to belong to God, and it makes void the commandment of God in order to keep the traditions of people. It is, we might add, an acquiescence to the logic or wisdom of the world, as St. Paul puts it in the first letter to the Corinthians, rather than an embrace of the logic or wisdom of God. The last of the four false loves we're looking at tonight is what Merton calls the package concept of love. Building on the logic or wisdom of the world, as well as the consistent theme of objectification that threads these false loves together, Merton describes love understood in this packaged way as deeply shaped by consumerism and vague pragmatism. He writes, quote, love is regarded as a deal. The deal presupposes that we all have needs which have to be fulfilled by means of exchange. In turn, we unconsciously think of ourselves as objects for sale on the market. We want to be wanted. We want to attract customers. We want to look like the kind of product that makes money. Hence, we waste a great deal of time modeling ourselves on the images presented to us by an affluent marketing society, end quote. This false understanding of love is likely recognizable to most people today. While Merton is writing this in the 1960s, with the advent of social media and advertising culture that targets its audiences directly, what he is describing might appear all the more familiar to modern women and men. Mern explains that this way of thinking leads us to consider ourselves and others not as persons, but as products, as goods, or in other words, as packages. We appraise one another commercially. We size each other up and make deals with a view to our own profit. We do not give ourselves in love, we make a deal that will enhance our own product, and therefore, no deal is ever final. Merton understands this dynamic to contribute to the insatiability of relationships today, especially romantic relationships. He surmises that, and I quote, for many people, what matters is the delightful and fleeting moment in which the deal is closed. They give little thought to what the deal itself represents. That is perhaps why so many marriages do not last and why so many people have to remarry. They cannot feel real if they just make one contract and leave it all at that, end quote. To think in such a consumerist or package manner is to be driven in part by a need for relevance and desirability. 
the, dissol the dissolubility of relationships and the avoidance of commitment follow from this way of thinking about love. Our eye is already on the next deal, Merton says, and this next deal need not necessarily be with the same customer. Life is more interesting when you make a lot of deals with a lot of new customers, end quote. Merton notes that this concept of love assumes that the machinery of buying and selling of needs and fulfillment is what makes everything run. It regards life as a market and love as a variation on free enterprise. Like the capitalistic vortex that propels the false religion of belief in a free market, the restless heart led astray propels this false love onward. We all hunger for connection. We all hunger for acceptance, fulfillment, and meaning. But this false concept of love insists that satisfaction is only found in our marketability. Pursuing this trajectory of false love only reinforces problematic outcomes and distraction from true love. Merton writes, the trouble with this commercialized idea of love is that it diverts your attention more and more from the essentials to the accessories of love. You are no longer able to really love the other person for you become obsessed with the effectiveness of your own package, your own product, your own market value. Merton goes on to explain this packaged sense of false love is built on a lie, albeit a lie that is often, often compelling and attractive. The whole marketing industrial complex is committed to its replication and advancement. But this way of being in the world is not only narcissistic, it is also essentially hollow. Interestingly, Merton makes the point that even those who are fully invested in this false love who even benefit from matching the consumeristic ideals of beauty and success will eventually arrive at a point when the hollowness of this false love cannot be avoided. And Merton writes, the truth is, however, that this whole concept of life and love is self-defeating. To consider love merely as a matter of need and fulfillment, as something which works itself out in a cool deal, is to miss the whole point of love and of life itself. And so this brief examination of the four kinds of false love that Merton writes about gestures toward a key question for us. What does true love look like then? So let's switch gears now with the time I have left to consider what Merton means when he talks about true love. The meaning and power of true love. When Merton writes about the discovery of our true selves, he makes the point that we come to know something about our true self and coming to know God. This is because God is the one who knows our truest and most essential identity, given that God is the one who loved us into existence. Likewise, when reflecting on the meaning of true love, Merton identifies God as the source and model of such love. In the essay in Disputed Questions, Merton ties together the quest for our true self with our inherent capacity for love, or what Augustine might call our restless hearts. Merton writes that our vocation to be sons and daughters of God means that we must learn to love God as God himself loves. For God is love, and it is by loving as God loves that we become perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. This leads Merton to reflect on the centrality of love not only for the Christian community, but also for all of humankind and the rest of creation. Love, then, is not only our own salvation and the key to the meaning of our own existence, Merton writes, but it is also the key to the meaning of the entire creation of God. It is true, after all, that our whole life is a participation in that cosmic liturgy of the love which moves the suns and other stars. 
offering a contrast with the false love of selfish interest and comfort, Merton notes that true love leads men and women to fulfillment, not by drawing things to themselves, but by forcing them to transcend themselves and to become something greater than themselves. He adds, all true love is therefore closely associated with three fundamental human strivings, with creative work, with sacrifice, and with contemplation. Where these three are present, there is reliable evidence of spiritual life, at least in some inchoate form. There is a reliable evidence of love, and the most important of the three is sacrifice. Now, to some readers, this prioritization of sacrifice over contemplation is surprising, especially coming from someone like Merton, who dedicated so much of his work in ministry to inviting all people to a contemplative life. However, Merton understood that true love is first and foremost agopic love, that self-sacrificial, challenging, and at times laborious love that demands something of the lover, that requires patience and persistence that may at times be messy and even uncomfortable. In short, true love is always somehow tied to the love Christ constantly exhibited and called his followers to live. Merton makes this point plainly when he states that a mature person is a person, quote, in Christ, and therefore someone who is, quote, able to live on the level of Christ's love. For those not yet at that point, those who are in the realm of the various forms of false love we looked at, the agopic love of Christ appears as foolishness, yet again invoking the Pauline distinction between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. Throughout much of Merton's writings, this sense of true love anchored in the agopic love of Christ is present, and he clearly understands the centrality of this view for Christian discipleship. But there is a noticeable shift in the way he writes about the meaning, power, and effects of this true love in the fall of 1966 that is not found as clearly in his early reflections, including the essay collected in Disputed Questions, published just a few years earlier. In reflecting on the active quality of love as something more than a passive event that merely chances to take place, as if struck from without by Cupid's arrow, for example, Merton writes that, quote, the question of love is one that cannot be evaded. Whether or not you claim to be interested in it, from the moment you are alive, you are bound to be concerned with love, because love is not just something that happens to you. It is a certain special way of being alive. Here we begin to sense the lived reality that undoubtedly informed Merton's own experience of true love in a way previously not seen. Love is, in fact, an intensification of life, a completeness, a fullness, a wholeness of life, Merton adds. And he writes strikingly, we do not become fully human until we give ourselves to each other in love. In the essay collection, Love and Living, Merton brings together two distinct but related and often elusive realities, those of the true self and of true love. He explains, and I quote, our conception of ourselves is bound to be profoundly affected by our conception and our experience of love. And our love or our lack of it our willingness to risk it or our determination to avoid it will in the end be an expression of ourselves, of who we think we are, of what we want to be, of what we think we are here for. And in a moving elaboration of exactly this point, Merton writes, love affects more than our thinking and our behavior toward those we love. It transforms our entire life. 
Genuine love is a personal revolution. Love takes your ideas, your desires, and your actions, and it welds them together in one experience, in one living reality, which is a new you. You may prefer to keep this from happening. You may keep your thoughts, desires, and acts in separate compartments if you want, but then you will be an artificial and divided person with three little filing cabinets, one of ideas, one of decisions, and one of actions and experiences. While false love is typically solipsistic and self-centered, true love is always other-focused, outwardly oriented, and ultimately transformative. Elsewhere, Merton develops this notion of the revelatory and transformative power of true love. He says that when people are truly in love, that they become different people. They are more than their everyday selves, more alive, more understanding, more enduring. They are transformed by the power of their love. Developing this further, Merton writes, love is the revelation of our deepest personal meaning, value, and identity. But this revelation remains impossible as long as we are the prisoner of our own egoism. I cannot find myself in myself, but only in another. My true meaning and worth are shown to me not in the estimate of myself, but in the eyes of the one who loves me. And the one must love me as I am, with my faults and limitations, revealing to me the truth that these faults and limitations cannot destroy my worth in their eyes and that I am therefore valuable as a person, in spite of my shortcomings, in spite of the imperfections of my exterior package. The package is totally unimportant. What matters is this infinitely precious message, which I can discover only in my love for another person. And this message, the secret, is not fully revealed to me, unless the same, at the same time I, come, I become able to see and understand the mysterious and unique worth of the one I love. The condition of the possibility for this powerful, transformative, true love is the recognition of the agapic or sacrificial quality that it requires. Again, echoing the wisdom of St. Paul uh, in his first letter to the Corinthians, this time with hints of chapter 13, Merton states that love is not a matter of getting what you want and that love is not a deal, it is a sacrifice. It is not marketing. It is a form of worship. This acknowledgement of the sacrificial and sacramental quality of true love sets Merton up to offer his clearest and most direct explanation of its meaning. He writes, in reality, love is a positive force, a transcendental spiritual power. It is, in fact, the deepest creative power in human nature. Rooted in the biological riches of our inheritance, love flowers spiritually as freedom and is a creature response to life in a perfect encounter with another person. It is a living appreciation of life as value and as gift. It responds to the full richness, the variety, the fecundity of living experience itself. It knows the inner mystery of life. It enjoys life as an inexhaustible fortune. Love estimates this fortune in a way that knowledge could never do. Love has its own wisdom, its own science, its own way of exploring the inner depths of life and the mystery of the loved person. Love knows, understands, and meets the demands of life insofar as it responds with warmth, abandon, and surrender. This sense of true love is what Merton suggests, a force that changes us when we experience and express it in its genuine form. 
For Merton, that form is always agopic in the spirit of Christ, which is why it is also love that includes uh, enemies as much as it does friends and neighbors. In Passion for Peace, for example, Merton makes this connection explicit, stating that this transformative power of love for our enemies is, and I quote, one of the crucial ways in which we give proof in practice that we are truly disciples of Christ. In closing, this sacrificial, challenging, and transformative power of true love is our shared vocation. But we are called to live in the world in order to participate in the inbreaking of God's reign. It is counterintuitive when viewed through the lens of the wisdom of the world, as St. Paul might put it, appearing as foolishness in the face of consumerism and capitalist impulses. Merton's own personal and spiritual journey led him to a deeper understanding of precisely the challenge and power of true love, manifesting as both love of God and love of his fellow persons and community. Perhaps the greatest experiential teacher for Merton was, in fact, his relationship with M, which, while imperfect and still not fully understood by those other than the two of them, nevertheless suggests a marked shift in Merton's own language and expression about true and false love. Whatever accounts for the lifetime of growth and learning, we benefit from the wisdom Merton leaves us to help us think through and live out our call to love as God has first loved us. So thank you, everybody. I'll go ahead and stop sharing this. Well, thank you, Dan. You have a, a wonderful ability to say a great deal about complex stuff in a way that we can understand it. But um, I have notes all over the place, and uh, <clears throat> there's so many ways I want to pick it up. I think I'll pick pick the questioning part up with your conclusion, and that was with his experience with M. And all along, I was thinking about. Particularly as a non-Catholic, I learned about the language of formation, particularly spiritual formation. And so I began thinking as you were going on this evening about love formation and how do we do it? And I think for me, that's what you were trying to say happened in his short time with M, was there was a kind of formative process of love. And Maybe you could comment on that more and where else in his life did that formative process. And so I'm trying to begin to imagine if I were in charge of developing a formation of love program, That's how great. would I do that? <laughs> That's a great concept. I mean, carrying through with that, that analogy of, of religious formation or, or even professional formation or other kinds of formation, um, you know, I, I have I have two thoughts about that. One is there are always stages, right? It's not an all at once sort of thing. So Christian discipleship, being students of the gospel, which is what a disciple is, a student of Christ, is a form of spiritual and lifelong formation. It's ongoing, right? Uh, Paul talks about this in that same passage, 1 Corinthians 13, you know, that as a young man, he had this experience, he saw it imperfectly, in, in et cetera. There's this, this stage of formation, Um I think the other thing too is when it comes to even this language of formation that you've introduced that I like, um, you know, I remember once there was a, a spirituality professor, a historical theologian named uh, Regis Armstrong, and, and he talked about, you know, formation includes deformation and reformation, right? 
so that we have to unlearn certain things in the formative process. You know, we, we encounter kind of false narratives or examine ourselves, the false selves, the false experiences or concepts of love. And they need to be deformed in order to reform our understanding. So with those two things in mind, I'm thinking about, you know, that, that experience of relationship in 1966 with, with M. And I don't want to overstate it because as I mentioned in my closing remarks, we don't know the whole story and I don't, I think that's okay at this point. I do, I think Sister Suzanne, may she rest in peace, I, who, you know, as a religious sister, somebody who knows religious life, as a, a Benedictine sister familiar with monastic traditions and as a trained psychologist, she has a lot of intersecting expertise and experience that she brings to the fore. And so I highlight that because it's not just me as a fellow male religious like Merton making a claim. I want to draw from the wisdom and insights of others. But I think Suzanne is right when she says that this was a, a, a transformative, right? So that formation appears again. It's a stage of his formation. The way I've often thought about it is Merton, you know, Merton was such a heady person, <laughs> Uh, as we know, and and especially in his early years, I mean, those of us who have studied Seven Story Mountain over and over again, and, and who have had the privilege of going back to like the typescript in Boston College's archives, or to go to the Bellarmine um, Thomas Burton Center and to look at some of the early drafts of Seven Story Mountain, much of what was excised was just like this complete abstraction. You know, he's dealing with philosophy and medieval thinking, and there's a lot of Latin. And uh, Bob Giroux, his editor at Harcourt Brace, and Naomi Burton Stone, his his agent, were wise to say, if you leave this stuff in here, no one will buy this book. <laughs> and so I bring that up to illustrate that, that, you know, I think he had to go through his own stages of formation. And for a long time, especially as a young person, as a teen, as somebody in his 20s, even in the early stages of religious formation, religious life, he had a very intellectualized, I think these false senses of love that we talked about tonight, I think these were drawn from his own experience. You know, it's not difficult to see what the package concept of love looks like when, you know, either as a kind of public figure and somebody who is uh, an author, you know, what is the appeal in the marketplace, right? He understands that as a person, but also I think having this experience of, romantic relationship with somebody like M, he starts to view himself from without in a different way as well. So I, I think that like the headiness of Merton, Merton understood ideas of love. And, and where I think Suzanne is really um, in, insightful is, and I would agree that that was an experience that allowed him to live something that you can't just think through. Yeah, that that's really important to me and, and uh, really underscores where I come from. And that is whatever it was with her, it was an experience. It wasn't a bunch of ideas and he didn't study it in the same way. So it was clearly experiential. Um, A kind of comparable question. I'm interested, and you didn't go here so much, but the role of friends in this whole formation of love. Uh, M was certainly a friend, maybe a friend on steroids or something, but he had a whole bunch of other friends long before he met her. So maybe you could comment on the role of a friend in love formation. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I hadn't really thought about that. I mean, when he talks about these concepts of love, true and false love, I mean, he is, he's being very inclusive. You know, he's clear to say again and again, it's not just romantic love, right? It's not just 
sexualized love, um, even in, in, in its most kind of, you know, good form, you know, it's, it's love in all kinds of ways, including the difficult love of loving quote unquote one's enemies. So where do friends fall into this? I, I think, you know, we can apply these categories to every instance of human interaction. I mean, Merton will go so far as to say with God too, isn't it interesting to think about love formation and how we objectify God, or we have a romanticized understanding of an ideal God and how God relates to the world or a packaged concept of God, you know, people who view themselves as unlovable because I don't meet a certain expectation projected onto God. But we do this with one another, with friendships, with co-worker relationships, with ministerial relationships or relationships in community or in our, you know, broader neighborhoods and, and communities and in our families. So I don't think actually there's that much qualification that's needed. It's more of an application of this kind of true love, false love paradigm to how we relate to our, those we call friends, you know, um, I think of that line, I'm smiling because I'm thinking of, it's kind of a paraphrase of Jesus says, you know, I call you friends. Uh, well, Jesus's agopic love is demonstrated there too. Um, yeah. All right, Teresa, I'm going to ask him one more question and we'll go back to you. Um, I, I certainly agree with you that, that Merton was a, was a restless soul um, from the get-go and probably all the way through. Um, maybe not all people are restless, certainly in the same way he is, but it occurred to me that a lot of people maybe are restless in the sense of searching. And so I'm really interested in uh, maybe the alternative for some of us who aren't so restless, we may be more stable or at least think we are than he was. But nevertheless, there's that search for love, search for meaning. So maybe you can comment on the relationship of being restless slash a searcher. That's interesting. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the notion of restlessness is an, it, it appears, at least to me, at first glance to be a problem, right? And I kind of set it up a little bit that way when talking about Merton's own lack of contentment, his own kind of restlessness. But I also think, you know, there are different ways, different sort of spiritual and, and theological images and language we can use to articulate the same thing. I mean, this notion of restlessness goes back famously to Augustine's confessions, right? That's the kind of key theme here. But we can talk about the spirits driving. I think about that passage of Jesus going into the desert in Mark's gospel. You know, the Greek word is not led as it is in Matthew and Luke. It's the spirit drives Jesus. It's a force that pushes or the, the spirits work in, in as, as it appears as the Ruach Elohim in, in Genesis 1 about, you know, the, the breath, the imminence of God that drives the order and then brings about future and planning and day came and evening came and morning followed, Right. I think that the restlessness in and of itself is, is that internal sort of drive or power that, that force within us that as Christians, we might identify as the spirits working in our hearts and in our lives. The question is, what do we do with that? You know? And so the seeking part, as I understand it, as you're introducing it is what do we seek? You know, Augustine also famous, this is becoming like an Augustine fest unintentionally, but you know, Augustine famously said, and I'll give the Franciscan credit, Bonaventure also popularized some centuries later this notion that we become like that, which we love. And though Merton doesn't use that phrase expressly, I think he would, he would very much like that in light of what we've been talking about. So what we seek, who we love, what we love and how we love 
those are all sort of expressions of the restlessness that we might think of as the energy or the, the engine beneath it. Um, and that's why I think, you know, Merton says at one point I shared this evening that these false concepts of love are very tricky sometimes because they, they are appealing and they have an internal cogency and internal logic to them. But where do they lead us? You know, what do we seek after if that's our conception, right? If that's the lens through which we channel that restlessness, that energy. So um, I think there are two ways of talking about it, I guess, is my extroverted way of getting to the point, Alan, that the seeking is, is the goal. It's the talos of, of the energy and the restlessness, that spirituality of restless heart is, is looking at the starting point. There are two ways to approach, you know, how we think about our experience of love and being in the world. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's like the true self. I mean, there really is an interesting parallel in, in this. I know some people are uncomfortable with the kind of limited binary of true self, false self. And we could talk about that some other time and as well with love, but what's useful, I think in this framework for Merton is that, you know, it's up to us, you know, we can be, as Merton says about the true self and false self, we can be true or we can be false. You know, <laughs> God gives us that opportunity. And so we can love truly, or we can love falsely. Um, there's a lot of pressure like there is at the false self. There's a lot of pressure to embrace these false concepts of love. Not all of which are, as I've mentioned, because we're uh, egocentric or because we're selfish inherently. Oftentimes it's rooted in fear, which I think also drives this kind of obsession with the false self. So that may be more than you were bargaining for. <laughs> I don't know if that's clear or not. Well, thank you, my friend, Teresa. Thanks so much, Dan, for this uh, wonderful introduction to Merton's, con uh, Merton's understanding of what I would call the, the mystery of love and by mystery of uh, something that is inexhaustible. The meaning is inexhaustible. And uh, in that same light, I thank Alan for um, his questions that show the all the other threads that could be, or so many other threads that could be, um, could be focused on in developing this notion and um, exploring the notion of Merton's concept of love. Um, I want to also thank the Spirituality Center at St. Mary's College for providing the Zoom platform and technical support for Tuesdays with Merton. And in that case, it's uh, Dan Moran as, as well. Uh, thank Bob Grip, who posts the webinars on YouTube. I want to thank Mark Mead, who makes them available as podcasts. And I want to thank all of you for joining us today and for continuing to spread the good word about Tuesdays with Merton. You can find links to the recordings of previous webinars at merton.org slash ITMS. There you will also find information about the International Thomas Merton Center. And if you are not already a member and wish to be, we invite you to consider joining. And we also welcome donations to support Tuesdays with Merton. Registration is now open for next month's webinar when Julianne Wallace will speak on Of Messengers of Peace, a liturgy for our world in the voice of Merton and Francis. To register, go to merton.org slash ITMS. So for now, goodbye, stay safe, and we look forward to seeing you in October.